as always, it is an honor to bring the Word of God to you this morning. And it's always a, a humbling and a, a, a scary thing to, to preach the Word of God, but I just pray that God would give me grace this morning. Um, texts like the one we're in this morning, they're always they're, they're very essential in our understanding of God's covenant faithfulness, um, how we're to live and to teach according to God's standards, and they're also helpful in understanding issues of law and gospel. So I would ask for your prayers, that God would be gracious to me in delivering his word, and I would be faithful to Christ and all that I say, lest to be held accountable to God for mishandling the very words of God. So anytime you talk about issues of, of law and gospel, you're walking a fine line of antinomianism, which we'll talk about more uh, later on, and legalism. So I would once again ask for your grace, as teaching on the law of God is a very difficult task, and especially more so even in, in a Reformed, conservative, evangelical setting, as many of us do have quite different ideas of how the law of God should be applied in the New Covenant, and many other reasons play into this as well. But it is my great longing to be faithful to the Word of God and to honor Him with all that I say. And I ask that if you hear something you believe to be inconsistent with Scripture, uh, or the text that we're going through this morning, that you would please uh, come talk to me about it. Because I do not long to say what I like, or to create my own spin on this text. I want to be subservient to the Scriptures and say what God is saying. So I ask as a church that you would hold me accountable to this high standard. So our text this morning is found in Deuteronomy 6. I'll be going through verses 20 through 25. So you can turn with me in your Bibles there. So as I was preparing for this morning, I did no less than, you know, I pulled a Corey Fenton, I guess you could say. So I was a little ambitious of how far I was going to go like multiple times this week. So at, at one point, um, I thought I was going to get through verse 6 at the beginning of this week. And I realized, you know what, maybe verse 6 won't fit, so I'm just going to cut it down to 5. And I cut it down to 5. I, I'm working through it this week. I think towards the end of the week, I'm realizing, you know what, I, I, that's way too much. I don't want to bombard everybody because, you know, in Acts 20, when Paul was preaching, you know, someone fell out of a window after they fell asleep, so I don't want to have a situation like that. Um, so I decided, you know, I'm going to cut it down, chapter 7, verse 2. And then as we met yesterday, um, I realized once again, there's so much in this text that we can, we can talk about. I decided to just uh, cut it down to the end of chapter 6, so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So I pray that all that I say is consistent with the testimony of Scripture and with our text this morning in Deuteronomy. Let us hear now the words of the living and the true God. It says, When your son asks you in the time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we were careful to, careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with me in this time, God, that you would keep me from error, God, that I would speak with, with clarity, that you would use me as a vessel to, to preach your truth, God, that, that what this text is saying may become clear, God. I pray that Christ would increase, that I would decrease, that they would not see the words of men, but the words, the words of God. I pray that you would keep me from error, that I may be faithful to your word as I will stand in the judgment and be held accountable for what I've say, said here and how I've handled this text. 
I pray that you would speak through your spirit. God, that we would open eyes and hearts, God, to, to see the beauty of your truth, God, and to, to look to Christ in all things. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So starting out in verses 20 through 23, I'll read it again. It says, When your son asks you in the time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So sandwiched between Corey's text from last week and what we'll be looking at later in chapter 7, I thought I was going to be looking at it in chapter 7, but we'll be looking at that later, is the Canaanite ban that's expounded. So in between those is what Israel supposed to look like, what they're supposed to do um, in juxtaposition to the Canaanites' immorality and iniquity. Israel is supposed to be different than the enemies of God that they are driving out of the land, as we saw in the verse prior. And these verses help give us insight on how they are to live as God's covenant people. So the first thing we see in this text that Israel is supposed to do is remind their sons and subsequent generations of God's promises and faithfulness. In verse 20, the son asks his father what the testimonies and the statutes mean which the Lord our God commanded. So by this, it is assumed that the son will come and ask these types of questions. So it, it must be noted on the outset, especially looking at verse 20, that the things of God are in the air. Like if you, if you could smell the things of God, you could smell them in these godly households. So the son knows the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments of God, which Yahweh commanded. The son is not merely asking what the statutes and judgments of God are, but rather what, what they mean, what, what's their substance. So it can be inferred by the son's question that the son already knew the statutes and the testimonies of God because they were already taught to him, and now he is going deeper to try to figure out the meaning of these things. And this should be the same in all of our households. The things of God must be faithfully taught from generation to generation. And the text we're in, in Deuteronomy 6, it, firstly, it applies it to fathers and teaching uh, their sons, and, and also an application could be daughters as well. So for, first and foremost, the text is saying that it is the duty of Christian parents to be teaching their children the things of God. So that questions like this, that the son is asking his father, that they would be commonplace in the households of God. And not only that these questions would be commonplace, but that we would be ready, ready as you know fathers to, to give an answer um, to these questions. That we would know the scriptures so well that when our sons ask us about the things of God, we were able to explain by showing them what the scriptures teach. So we must know the scriptures not only for ourselves and our own souls, but for the souls of our heritage that we might teach them. And for those without children or for those who are single, uh, this does not apply to you. Or, at, you know, I'm in this group as well, so we're just going to, you know, kind of move on and forget about that. No, 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 it does it, not. See, I'm in this group. This applies to me as well, right? It is the duty of all Christians to teach and explain the scriptures, both to biological sons and daughters, but also to spiritual sons and daughters in the faith. No Christian is excused from teaching subsequent generations the ways of God. I myself have no biological son who is coming up to me and asking me these questions. Does that mean I am free to not obey this teaching? No. Yeah, of course not. Of course not. We all must be intentionally discipling those who are fellow sons of God and are children of the faith. 
It is the duty of all Christians to be ready to explain the meaning, the statutes, and the judgments of God. The question now arises, how do we do this? And when the son asks his father what these testimonies and statutes mean, the father's response is seen in verse 21 through 23, saying, Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So at first glance, it seems kind of a, a, a bit of an odd answer um, at first. But according to this passage, he is to answer his son by taking him first and foremost to the covenant faithfulness of God in redemptive history. So not only are we supposed to teach younger generations the ways of God, but we're also to take them back through redemptive history and show them God's covenant faithfulness to his people. So to take them back to the Exodus and retell of how God brought you out of Egypt, to show them how God brought you from slavery and captivity and has been faithful to maintain you and is now working about bringing you into the promised land. And in the new covenant, since how Christ brought you from the bondage of slavery to sin out of Egypt into the promised land, where you're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. We know that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And as Christians, we know that Christ came that we might be free from the bondage of our own sin. We are, as Peter said, we kind of talked about uh, this morning as well, to live as people who are free, living as slaves of God. So we're living as free people, as slaves of God. So we will be slaves either way. The question is, does this slavery bring about freedom or does this slavery bring about bondage? Paul said in Romans chapter 6, he said, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So when in Deuteronomy we were told to tell of how God brought us out of Egypt, I believe this can be directly applied to the telling and the teaching of the gospel to our sons both biologically and spiritually. I mean, is this not the gospel that Christ brought us from slavery to our sin to now being able to be free men and women in Christ? This is the gospel that we preach. So we must know the gospel well and be daily preaching it to ourselves so we may teach it to others. And that the sweet fragrance and aroma that I talked about, you know, if you could smell it in the households, you could. That this, this fragrance and aroma of the gospel of peace may be in the air of our homes, our workplaces, and wherever we go. And yes, Carm, the gospel belongs in the workplace. And this gospel includes repentance and turning from sin, that you can be set free in Christ. So we must be constantly retelling of God's faithfulness throughout history as Christ has promised to build his church. And we must rest ourselves on the promises of God. And we must teach others to do likewise. And this is, of course, the most important and vital application of how we are to respond to this passage in Deuteronomy 6. But not only this, there's an important application I think that's often missed in many evangelical churches. And this often neglected application that I want to talk about a little bit is a right understanding and teaching of church history. So, like Israel, we must teach God's faithfulness throughout time. As I mentioned, Christ made a promise to build his church, so it is important that we familiarize ourselves with how exactly he's gone about doing this. So we must not cut off anyone um, from the faithfulness of God in history. Like None of us are born into an empty world. We are born into a world where God has sovereignly been working all his purposes after the counsel of his own will. And God has been faithful to his people since the beginning of time. And we must be quick to tell of his unwavering faithfulness throughout the history of the world, and specifically through the history of his church. 
I mean, there, there's something special in, in studying church history um, to realizing you're a part of something bigger than yourselves and to see how God has been working through throughout time. The study of church history is both humbling and revealing as we realize not everyone was exactly like us and that we are just a small part of this grand picture that God is painting. But not only this, it's, in, it's encouraging and strengthening to our faith to see the statements of those in former days affirming the same beliefs and doctrines that we hold closely. There's something special about seeing someone in the second or third century defend the deity of Christ, you know, using the scripture alone as his final authority. Like we think of Athanasius or Augustine. Like these, it's, it's encouraging to see that in the early centuries. So we must go back first and foremost to the scriptures. Um, but also we, we need to go through church history and teaching of redemptive history of how God has been faithful and keeping his promises. God said through the Apostle Paul in Romans 15:4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So just as our text this morning, this is first and foremost applied to the scriptures going back to the ways of God and how he's redeemed us in Christ, brought us out of Egypt. But also this can be applied to church history as a whole. So as biological and spiritual fathers, it is our duty to study well so that we might teach the faithfulness of God throughout history and how this has found its climax in the death and the resurrection of Christ. So the second thing in this text that Israel is supposed to do is to teach the law of God and what the law of God means. It says in verses 24 through 25, So the Lord God commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, and for our survival, as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So not only are we supposed to understand and teach of God's faithfulness, but also how God sees things, as Corey talked about last week, which is of course seen best in his law. The law is a, very, is a reflection of the very character of God, and the law is the reference point of how God views all of life. And how man is to live. See, the son asks his father what the meaning and the statutes are, so we must be ready to give an answer. Not only what the statutes are, but what do they mean, and how are we to follow them in obedience to God? See, the law of God must not be taught as a, a burdensome yoke, but it must be taught as our protection and our liberation. See, lest we call God's standard a burden, we must embrace the law of God as the standard for life and godliness. 1 John 5, 3-4 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we must not only teach the law, but we must teach our sons and how to obey the law. If we are born of God, we will obey and keep his commandments. Not because we have to for meritorious righteousness, but because we want to. Uh, R.J. Rushdoony said that freedom comes not from lawless or antinomian doctrines, but for only from godliness and the obedience of faith. And for those who do not know, antinomian simply means, by definition, against law or literally lawlessness. And Webster, I think he, Webster defined it rightly in reference to Christianity. He said, it's one who holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, that the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary for salvation. And we must hold to justification by faith alone. And like, I mean must. Like we, we must hold to this. I mean, this is a central tenet of the gospel of grace. And to deny, to deny justification by faith is to deny the gospel. 
So we must affirm justification by faith without falling into antinomianism or lawlessness. We must affirm with the scriptures that we are justified by faith and are given a new heart. And now with our new heart, delight in doing the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. Now, many evangelicals may accuse me of legalism and Pharisaism, but I would make my plea that the scriptures do not teach that obedience is legalism. We're called to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If we are regenerate, we will long to obey Christ and God's law. We must not live as though we are autonomous or literally a law unto ourselves. See, God has spoken and as his people, it is our desire to obey his law. Our delight should be in the law of God as the blessed man of Psalms 1. And in the law of God, we should meditate day and night. And as we've talked about extensively here at Covenant, and especially as we went through Romans, especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11, um, men will do exactly what they want in their nature. The problem is that Scripture reveals that we are all by nature children of wrath, and are, you know, we are in rebellion to God's ways and his law. Um, so we must have a new nature, which we will talk about more later on, and this new nature that will long to obey God and his law. Now, if anyone thinks I'm in danger of confusing law and gospel, and I'm guilty of you know teaching another gospel, I would ask that you would please, you know, out of love for me, come like come talk to me about this. So we can, you know, reason about this together. Or even if there's you know disagreements about certain wording that I've used in regards to the law, I would ask for your uh, reproof and correction. Um, but I do believe what I've said in regards to obedience to the law, consistent with salvation by faith alone. And I hope that you know we can flesh this out more as we get into verses 24 and 25 as we see the one who obeyed the law perfectly for us prefigured. So going on to verses 24 and 25 as well, it says, So not only do we see the necessity of teaching the law and the importance of obedience to the law as God's people, but we also see the one who perfectly obeyed the law for us prefigured. So once again, it says in verses 24 and 25, The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, and for our survival, as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And real quickly, before we look closely at the prefigure in these verses, it is important to note that the fear of the Lord, or the fear of Yahweh, is for our good always. And we've talked about this extensively in our study through Isaiah on Wednesday and Sunday nights. We see how highly Isaiah and you know all the prophets view the fear of God as a necessity in the Christian life. It says in Ecclesiastes 12, 12, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. The very duty and purpose of man is to fear God and obey his commands. Not only is the fear of the God necessary for eternal life and peace with God, but it says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. But not only this, we see here in Deuteronomy, that the fear of the Lord is for our good always. And it's for our very survival. And this phrase, I think the ESV translates it, might preserve us alive. Um, I actually prefer uh, this translation, but I think this phrase is essential in understanding this text in a Christ-centered way. Um, so I, like I said, I do prefer the ESV rendering because throughout the Old Testament, when this word or phrase is used, uh, it's used in reference to life or to the state of being alive. And we see that this phrase is used six different times in Ezekiel 37, in reference to new life and in reference to new resurrected uh, life. 
So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. So this phrase, preserve us alive, or uh, for our survival, and the Hebrew is hayah. Like, that, that, that's, how it's, that's how it's pronounced, and so it's fun to say. Maybe I should just say the phrase when we come to the word. Um, but I'm going to point out each time uh, when we get to the phrase in Ezekiel 37, uh, each time uh, that it's used. Um, so I'll be going, I'll be starting in verse 1, Ezekiel 37, going through uh, verse 14. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he sat me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? There's a phrase. And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. There is again. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive. There is again. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they came to life, there it is again, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. There's a phrase once again. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So the problem for Israel in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 6 is that the preservation of their life, this phrase, that their survival, it rested upon their obedience to the law of God. So if left in the hands of the Israelites, they would end up in the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, which in case you missed it, the whole house of Israel was in the valley of dry bones. According to Moses, if Israel obeyed, observed all these statutes, they are promised new creational life as picked up here by Ezekiel. This survival and preservation, as found in Deuteronomy 6, as I understand it, can only be understood as no less than new creational, resurrected life from dry bones to a resurrected people. This is the promise of Deuteronomy 6, is that if you observe the statutes, you can have new resurrected life. In Deuteronomy 6, they are promised that it will be righteousness to them if they observe all these statutes that they are commanded to do. Unfortunately for the people of Israel, they are unable to observe all the statutes of Yahweh and thus are unable to merit this resurrection life, and thus, and that is promised via perfect obedience. Uh, so this is where we see in verse 25, the one who would obey these statutes perfectly foreseen and foretold. 
So if you could turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah 33, and we'll be going through verses 14 through 16. And I must give credit uh, to Corey here for pointing me to this text, as I, I agree with him that this is a very important text on looking at a passage like ours in Deuteronomy. That's Jeremiah 33. I'll be going through verses 14 through 16. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord, or literally Yahweh, is our righteousness. So as we see here in Jeremiah 33, verse 15, that the Lord, our righteousness, is directly tied to the kingly line of David. It is the branch of David who will spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness. Obedience to the law cannot be our righteousness, because we are unable to observe all this commandment, before the Lord, our God, just as he commanded us. So we must have a man as a federal representative, but he must be no mere man. The Lord, or Yahweh, as Jeremiah 33 said, is our only hope of righteousness. In the person of Christ, we have all these promises coming to fruition. Christ came as a man, but no mere man. Christ is revealed clearly in Scripture as Yahweh. And Second Peter, the apostle Peter, wrote as an introduction to his epistle, in uh, verse 1, he said, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as the same kind of as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The teaching of the apostles was that salvation was by faith and the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we see the branch from the line of David fulfill the promises that the Lord would be our righteousness, both a man from the line of David and God, God in the flesh. And this idea is not a novelty in the New Testament. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, he says, But for what, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I might gain Christ. and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So since we cannot obey all the statutes of God, our righteousness does not and cannot derive itself from the law, but can only come through faith in Christ. And how is this Christ described in whom we have faith? But the very righteousness of God, which comes from God. Christ stepped into history as a second person of the Trinity, truly God and truly man, that he might be the branch from the line of David and obey God's law perfectly, that he might be our righteousness. He was able to fulfill the task of Deuteronomy 6, verses 24 and 25. He was able to observe all the statutes that were given to Israel. And meritorious righteousness is unable, once again, to come from mortal man and only from a righteousness of another. As God declares in Isaiah, and we all know this very well, our, right, our righteous works are like filthy rags before a holy God. So in light of this, we must transfer our faith from our observation of statutes to the one who obeyed God's law perfectly on our behalf. And it is then that the Lord will be our righteousness and that we will be able to enter the good land of pleasure. So in conclusion, 
it is the Christian duty to teach and remind both biological and spiritual sons and daughters of the faithfulness of God in history, and especially as this is seen in redemption in Christ. We also saw that it is the Christian desire to obey the law of God and to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we must be ready to teach and explain the words and the statutes of God. And most importantly, we saw our perfect righteousness prefigured in the person of Christ. Christ came 2,000 years ago to obey God's law for us, or we could not, that he as the God-man may be our righteousness and be the fulfillment of the promise that Yahweh, he will be our righteousness. He was the son of Deuteronomy 6 that would ask of his father's ways, and he would obey his laws and statutes perfectly, unlike the sons of Israel. He was the true Israel who would do what Israel was supposed to do. And it is through his righteousness and obedience that we were promised a land much greater than the land promised here in Deuteronomy 6. It is much greater than the land of Canaan. We were promised in Christ no less than the whole earth. So we must look to Christ as our righteousness and our only hope for peace with God and our entrance into the good land, which will be found in full in the fully realized new heaven and new earth. But let not a firm grasp of Christ's righteousness on our behalf and a right understanding of justification by grace through faith alone cause you to fall into lawlessness or antinomianism. We are called as Christians to obey the statutes of Yahweh found in his law as an outworking of faith, which we have been given via regeneration as a gift of God. But when we stand before God, it will be a great pity if we look to our own righteousness and assume that this will grant us peace with God. We must look to Christ and assume that this will grant us peace with God and not our obedience. We must look to Christ and be looking to Christ more and more as the day of our death draws near. Because it is sure, we will soon meet the Lord face to face, and it is appointed man to die once, and then comes the judgment. So may we be found as having the righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith alone on that great day, that we may enter into eternal bliss with our God and our Creator and our Savior, Jesus Christ.